From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. Parker Anderson is a research scientist at the University of Minnesota. He's the facilitator of the Science of the Green Initiative, a research partnership between the United States Golf Association and the University of Minnesota that focuses on developing research and innovation strategies which address sustainability challenges facing the golf industry. Parker has a bachelor's degree in economics and environmental studies from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a master's degree in landscape architecture and sustainable systems from the University of Michigan School of Natural Resources and the Environment. Parker worked as a PGA professional certified in sweater folding, instruction, and golf operations in Palm Desert, the Twin Cities, and Chicago. And he's competed on various professional golf tours. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Parker. Thanks for taking the time uh, at the snowy University of Minnesota, I understand, as we are here in December of 2018. Parker, I want to start out with your work for your master's degree at the University of Michigan. And boy, did they get a whooping from Ohio State, but we won't go down. Uh, oh, man. We won't go, bring that one up. We, we won't go down that road. But <laughs> thankfully, it appears Urban Meyer's retiring, so maybe uh, yes, sir. there's hope uh, for the University of Michigan. But we digress. Let's get into your connection between the game of golf and broader questions about the value of golf and especially the value of the land. In in your thesis, you took a uh, sort of a permaculture approach, if you will, uh, care for yeah. the land, care for the people, and then the concept of fair share. So the first question, nice softball, how did you grow up uh, exposed to golf and how has that shaped your view of the work you're doing now? Well, I grew up as a golfer. My dad was a big golfer uh, from Minnesota and uh, I grew up playing in California and just just had a passion for the game. I was started off probably most more interested looking for golf balls than than playing and, and then selling them to my my uncle. But uh, that's another story. <laughs> but yeah, love love the game. I grew up playing junior golf. I was involved with junior golf for a long time. I spent some time in Hawaii in in junior golf and just love the sport. And on the other side of it, I've I've always been an, an outdoorsman and and really interested in nature and, and science. And so. You know, after my undergrad program at UC Santa Barbara, I got into the golf business as a club professional and uh, really loved to teach and I loved to uh, grow the game and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I just saw, saw there's a kind of a big gap between uh, my passion for the environment, for the outdoors, and, and, and what's going on in the golf industry. So I saw there's uh, significant opportunities for improvements in efficiency of, of resource use and for for utilizing these these large green spaces, you know, oftentimes they're they're um, you know the only green spaces in some of these urban areas, so they have significant uh, value to those to those areas. So uh, that kind of guided me towards a, a degree in landscape architecture and a degree in um, a master of science in what's called sustainable systems at the University of Michigan. So. All of that led to your current position at the University of Minnesota, working on the science of the green project, greener golf, and the communal project. And I want to get specifically go back to your master's work, not your MLA. Uh, sure. And it's very impressive for a former sweater folder to have <laughs> so many advanced degrees. 
Uh, yeah. So big, big kudos to you for uh, getting out of the pro shop uh, and and back into the science of it. So well, thank you. So so, yeah. so <laughs> and of course, all the golf course superintendents listening to this are getting a chuckle by the by the yeah. sweater folder comment. But let me ask you: one of the things you found as I was reading your thesis that struck me, especially with you as a golfer and developing these interests was how your study seemed to conclude, or at least showed a trend, that there wasn't necessarily a relationship, a positive relationship, between the amount of time a person spent on a golf course, participation rate, I believe you called it low versus high, and their value of environmental stewardship. In fact, you found people who spent less or little to no time on the golf course valued the environmental stewardship greater than those that were on the golf course uh, at the same time. So there's a lot to unpack here. Let's start with your experiencing interacting with golfers as a club professional. Sure. Um, well, a lot of, a lot of golfers see, see golf as a recreational opportunity, and they don't uh, necessarily associate a golf course with um, the, the other kind of natural capital benefits or the ecosystem services and all the functions that a golf course provides. Um, so, so, so part of that might be a, uh, an information gap of not, not getting the information out to the golfers. But, um, you know, from my experience, I was mostly involved with private clubs as a club professional. And these clubs, really, their, their focus is a recreational opportunity for, for these people for learning the game, for the camaraderie component, really kind of a, a social and also a competitive component. There's a, there's a significant draw for, for competition and so forth. And so I saw that there was a, or identified a, a, um, an information gap there between what currently goes on at a, at a golf course versus what, what I see as, as the ecosystem function and the role a golf course can kind of play as a, as a value to the community. And um, so that, that's kind of been the premise and the focus of my, of my research at the University of Minnesota here is collecting the data and trying to connect that or close that information gap and really um, tell the narrative of the golf course as a valuable land use. And one of the things that you used uh, in making that case in your thesis was asking the people after a round of golf, one of your theories of, of uh uh, caring for the people is the restorative pow- power of these green spaces, right? And sure. and and some of the questions that you used in your study uh, that's available online, and I was able to get it. Uh, the University yep. of Minnesota makes it freely available. So for all the listeners that want to follow up, uh, that thesis is there. And one of the things I thought was interesting, Parker, was the way uh, you asked them about being tired or happy, right? You had to sort of associate the round. You're looking for the sociological benefits of a round of golf or the sort of restorative value. And one of the things you found was that they were very neutral about it. And and I wonder if you couldn't speak for a second about maybe one of the reasons golfers don't notice the environment around them is because they're very much enraptured in their game. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. I would, I would agree with that. Is, is a lot of times, and all, all golfers know that sometimes when, when you're in a round, you're kind of you got your your head down and you're you're looking looking at the next shot, and uh, that's that's that could be a a reason. We we still I, I believe there needs to be more more study and more more data collection on this topic as as our conclusions were. Um, 
you know, inconclusive as far as as far as a uh, definitive result. But um, but I agree. It's, it's you know, golf is a is a game where you can kind of get in your own head and and really have to kind of plot along and and focus on your next shot. So a lot of times, and I, I notice this in myself as well as when I'm playing golf. Sometimes I, I kind of don't notice my surroundings. Um, so. So, so, so with that, I think there's there's opportunities to to try to pull pull golfers out of their head a little bit and try to get them more engaged with the right. space that they're okay. playing in and and, and better right. understand their surroundings. That's right. That's right. And there's the word, right? There's the word that you identified uh, in your thesis as one of the recommendations is is the engagement, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the, that that it, just because they're there, we can't assume that golfers know these things. I guess I challenge to ask you, and since you've been gone and working on this now and thinking about the list a little bit more. Um, have you found any successful strategies you would tell the average superintendent on how to get the attention of the golfer about these issues, about this value beyond just the game and the role of the landscape they're enjoying uh, for the broader need? Is there a way to do it without, number one, lulling them to sleep and, number two, uh, disturbing their round? Yeah. Um, that's a good, that's a good question. And I think there, there's a lot of opportunities and I think it depends on the, the characteristics of the club and the characteristics and the interests of the people participating. Um, you know, some golfers are very golf focused, but there's others that really see, see, uh, see, see their golf course as a community resource. And so there's, there's multiple opportunities for educational intervention, whether it's, uh, through you know through through blogs, I think I think the the trend of, of superintendents to really uh, spread their message and tell tell golfers what's going on on the course is really valuable um, in the golf shop. So the so the sweater folders can can uh, <laughs> I think be be better spokesmen for for what's going on in the golf course with regard to the management and what's going on. Right. And, and how it's, a, how well, it's an ecosystem asset. Well, so let me let me interrupt you, and because sure. those were too good, those are really good suggestions. But then fundamentally, we have this other part of the landscape that the architect designed to play. Yeah. Right. And I wonder sometimes, as a student of this, I would imagine to a certain extent, as an LA, you're mm-hmm. a bit of a student of the architecture. And Absolutely. I know that one of the courses that you worked on in Michigan was recently renovated for a fair amount of money. Would you speak for a minute, particularly like the Oak Meadows golf course that you used as an example in, in the Chicago district area that they're improving for stormwater? It seems yeah. to me that. One way to help get at golfers, because they look at architects as sort of sort of starlight people, I wonder if there's ways we have to work with the architects to look at repurposing the landscape sometimes for a broader ecosystem value versus just the game, and if that isn't a way we can talk to golfers better. Absolutely. I think uh, there's a lot of lot of potential for kind of an interdisciplinary approach to the management of the golf course. So the golf, golf course architect has a really key role. Um, the superintendent obviously has a, has a key role. The golf shop and the general manager, the club pro, have a key role in, in, in this as well. And I think through, through data collection, so things like uh, mapping golfer traffic patterns is a really fascinating um, 
study because it, it uh, shows how the golf course is used. So is, is the golf course architect's intent being um, uh, come to fruition, or, or are there opportunities to maybe shrink the footprint of a fairway because no one uses, you know, the golfer traffic doesn't hit a certain portion. So we can maybe take that out of, out of, uh, out of play and, and save some money by doing so. And I think in the end, when you started out this work, uh, enhancing efficiency, uh, a lot of it is going to begin uh, with the design. And so why don't we take a break here, Parker? I want to come back and talk about the, we've sort of went through a little bit of the people. I want to talk a little bit about the land, and then we'll get to the trade-offs <laughs> at the very end. Yeah. Um, good. Well, we'll be right back. Uh, I'm with Parker Anderson from the University of Minnesota Science of the Green Project. This is Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm with Parker Anderson at the University of Minnesota Science of the Green Project. And Parker, a former golfer, and as we've agreed, uh, former sweater folder, recovering sweater folder, if you will. <laughs> Parker, I want to take the question broader away from uh, the people and, and, and uh, maybe what the golfer thinks to the sort of other part of the permaculture approach is care for the land. Um, Ron Dodson, you quoted him in your thesis, um, you know, our economic fate is tied to the functioning and proper functioning of our ecological uh, processes. Uh, you, one of the courses or both the courses at the University of Michigan were participating in the Michigan Turfgrass Environmental Stewardship Program that I was the predecessor before Greg Lyman and the starting of that. So I have a personal interest in, yeah. in seeing that program sort of help people not just learn about environmental stewardship, but also get some recognition uh, for that work to help people understand it. In the process of your work of of thinking about ecological processes, Parker, and thinking about the work with the stewardship program you you identified things that are common on golf courses. You have diverse habitats. You have invasive plants. Um, what was some of the simple low-hanging fruit you would tell the average golfer that's important for them to understand as human beings living on this planet that golf courses provide exceptionally well? Well, that's uh, there's there's definitely some regional variation, um, but I would say in the in the Midwest here, uh, golf courses are uh, have great potential as as stormwater catchment basins. There's a dramatic increase with uh, you know population growth and and urban development, and so you know these the green areas and these these uh, are are kind of shrinking on this on this landscape, whereas 
the, the impervious surfaces in these landscapes are really increasing. So there's a dramatic increase in runoff potential. And so a golf course could really become a, a stormwater catchment basin or a filtration system for these, for these urban areas. Um, Especially and, and when is, golf courses yeah. are located in these heavily urban areas where now climate change is bringing us these uh, more frequent, intense uh, precipitation, right, that, that requires a lot more management of the surface water uh, versus the groundwater. Exactly. And, and rather than having all of this runoff into, into the infrastructure and, and flushed out of that system, we want to catch a lot of that on, on site. And so, you know, golf course is a big green space. Turf grass is, a, is an excellent uh, filter of water and, and, and can, we can sequester that water on site and really regenerate some of that, uh, that water into the aquifer rather than, than flushing it out. Okay, so let me challenge you on this uh, regional idea, because as you've indicated to me previously, uh, Stanford University is involved in this. And whenever you think about, or certainly I think about golf in California or golf uh, in drier areas, I'm thinking about the absolute requirement and Mm -hmm. uh, economic uh, pressure that golf courses are under for water resources. So it's fairly easy to demonstrate the value where maybe they can help in urban areas. What would you tell a California resident uh, about the potential value for those golf courses in those areas? I got one in the back of my head. I'm wondering (laughs) if we're thinking the same thing. You first. Well, so with regard to water, there's, there's a lot of opportunities to reclaim water and use, use uh, reclaimed water and, and, and re- reintroduce that back into the landscape on a golf course. But additionally, by having these green spaces, there's opportunities to create habitat for other species. So in the Midwest, or excuse me, on the West Coast, we're a huge agricultural state, rely heavily on pollinators and, and bees. And by having these green spaces, by having these irrigated areas, we can encourage uh, native habitat on the out-of-play areas and really try to boost the populations and health of pollinators. So that's a significant benefit by having a golf course as an area where we can increase the biodiversity. So how do you explain the value of biodiversity to a golfer? That's a good question, and, and it's, a, it's a really challenging one because um, there's still a lot, of, a lot of research that needs to be done with regard to what, what impact a increase in habitat or increase in the amount of, you know, flowers, what impact does that have on the species richness? Um, but there's, there's been some studies that, like at the University of Minnesota, we have the Bee Lab, which is one of the, a, a great research lab for, for pollinators in the, in the country. And um, we're looking at integrating um, kind of low profile uh, flowering plants like uh, white clover and creeping thyme and some other l- low-profile plants into into parks, but also I think there's opportunities for, for for integrating those type of plants into either rough areas or on the driving range or kind of in in, in out-of-play areas, and and that really benefits that ecosystem by having that additional forage for for pollinators and. Um, that really adds to the ecosystem value. So, so as I was uh, saying earlier, and I date some of these, it's the end of uh, 2018 and 
California is experiencing some of the nastiest forest fires they've had in a while. And contrary to the leader of our country's assertion that we should rake the leaves a little bit more, I think we might take a little bit of a deeper dive. I may have lost half my audience there, Parker. Uh, nevertheless, uh, would you argue golf courses make exceptional fire breaks as well? And there's some value in an irrigated landscape, even if it's not a golf course, but a large irrigated landscape as a fire break? Absolutely, I think I think that's that's definitely one of uh, one of the key key factors and key values of a golf course is, um, and like you said, irrigated landscapes in general of uh, mitigating some of that fire danger. Absolutely. And so when we think about the ecosystem function, I want to get back to the people a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was in Sweden. Uh, I did my uh, sabbatic in, in Scandinavia, lived in Sweden, worked with the Swedish Golf Federation in, in 2004 through 2009. Maria Strandberg was uh, leading the effort for the Scandinavian Turf Research Foundation, Environmental Research Foundation, and they did some of the landmark work on uh, multifunctional golf courses, multifunctional mm-hmm. landscapes, how the golf course can be used for many different things. You know, I, I'm pretty good with stormwater. I'm pretty good with biodiversity. I'm pretty good with fire breaks. We could probably think about the things that are benefiting the broader people. But, uh, Parker, I got a golf course. I'm out there playing golf. I can have people riding horses. I'm going to have people doing archery. Uh, I want, I'm being, of course, the devil's advocate here, but I wonder yeah. if you can explain to me for a minute to the average person on, who lives and works on golf courses uh, how you can make these uh, landscapes multi-use uh, without somebody getting hit in the head with a stray golf ball. Yeah, well, it definitely takes some planning and some foresight. So, you know, we look at a, the average golf course is about 150 acres. 60% of that is managed for turf or play. 40% is is other land cover, and so can can we utilize that forty percent for other uses? Um, additionally, you know when you start the day, uh, your your asset, which is the golf course, is is not optimized to its full potential. So you've got a, a group of golfers starting on the first tee, but there's there's seventeen and a half holes ahead of them that are underutilized at that point. So can you? Um, encourage some programming that would, would utilize that space while it's open, or is it, uh, you know, there's, I think there's some opportunities there to look at your asset in a different way. Um, some of it is, is educational. So there's, can you, can you bring in um, groups that are interested or stakeholders that are interested in the golf course and, and to use that space, whether it's for bird watching or, like you said, horseback riding, it, it, it all depends on what's going on in that community. But I think there's there's definitely some opportunities there. And so, have you seen successes? Give me an example, right? It's pretty easy. You've got the Oak Meadows golf course from your thesis that did the stormwater stuff. There's others that have done water stuff. Have you found a good example? And a lot of what we're talking about is going to have to be a retrofit. So it's not easy when you've got a 100-year-old golf course to plan this out. It can't just be around play. I guess I'm wondering, give me an example of where you've seen it be successful where they've retrofitted it. Well, I think there's a number of cases, but I think the key component to the success is collecting the data first and seeing how that asset or the golf course is utilized. So looking at golfer traffic patterns, looking at efficiency of management, is that golf course managed optimally? And can we 
cut some areas out or change a routing. Maybe there's opportunities to make small loops on the golf course. With the University of Minnesota golf course, we've been doing some research and looking into, can we create these smaller kind of packaged golf experiences? So time is obviously a factor for many golfers nowadays, prohibiting them from entering the game. So can we provide a three-hole golf experience or just a nine-hole golf experience while still having um, an 18-hole golf course? So I think there's a number of successes. It's just a matter of, like I said, some regional variation and what, what really is important to that community. Well, and it, I tell you, it really turns the way we think about golf as a, as a game on its head a little bit. We're thinking about making adaptations to the game to accommodate more expansive use of the land. And yet, you know, golf's got a long history of exclusivity. So this has to be just cognitively for you a bit of a challenge when it feels like you're trying to invite people to something that's been historically reserved for at least as many society thinks the privileged few. How do you reconcile that? If we look at the industry as a whole, about 80% of golf courses are public facilities, whereas 20% are private. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in kind of breaking down some of these barriers around the golf course so that blending some of these values outwards into the community. If it's a private club, they may not allow everyone to play it, but if, if they can disseminate a message to the community that that golf course being there is of value to that community, that's a win-win. So the community recognizes that this green space has these ecosystem functions and values. Mm-hmm. I may not join this club, <laughs> but having it there you know, adds a value to my community. Whereas on the public side, there's a lot of opportunities to engage people into the golf course through alternative programming. And for revenue. Yeah, for revenue, exactly. So by adding additional programming to a golf course, you're going to bring in people that are not golfers. And so, you know, that's an, that's an entry point. We use a lot of golf courses here in central New York for cross-country meets and, right. and a lot of the ways uh, golf courses here in the hills of central New York are getting by is having uh, upgraded food and beverage and having a band every once in a while. So lead yeah. play continues to drive these things. I think we're seeing some of this movement, but it's still very traditional. I think what you're beginning to introduce is a more non-traditional way uh, mm-hmm. of expanding it. And I'm glad that uh, we've taken a little bit of time here. I want to take a break and get back to the conversation at hand, which is the concept of fair share. When we get back, Parker Anderson from the University of Minnesota and I will continue this conversation. This is Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Okay, Parker, we're back, and I want to bring up a confluence of uh, things regarding our fair share. From your thesis, the concept of fair share in permaculture, which is the integration of uh, the sort of competing interests of the trade-offs you have to make, you know, managing a site 
and the benefits you get for imposing that management. And I want to bring that together with some of your pace of play work, right? So first of all, let's start with um, the concept of fair share so that our listeners know what we're talking about. In simple terms on a golf course, how would you describe it? Well, the permaculture concept of fair share really applies to kind of an even playing field and economically is finding the components of a golf course that really add value and kind of boosting those values. Okay, and so when you're looking at the management, right, every day there's mow, water, maybe a liquid nutrient application, granular nutrient, maybe cultivation, they're raking the bunkers, they're burning fossil fuels, they're distributing water, maybe they're making an application of a pesticide. I'm assuming that's the one side of the equation. And the other side is what's the value of doing those things to determine that. So let me go right at the sort of big number we've always had in golf, and that's green speed. And let's talk for a minute about what you guys have learned so far on the relationship between really fast greens and really slow rounds of golf. Yeah, so the uh, the USGA and the University of Minnesota have had a long research partnership, and part of my role uh, was to facilitate this uh, green speed pace of play study. And so what we wanted to do was put some data behind the anecdote that fast greens uh, result in a slower play. We use some GPS data, so looking at golfer traffic data throughout a round. And with that data, you can uh, look at the time spent on the green. And what we would do is adjust the green speed from week to week. So we conducted this this study over a three-week period. We'd hand out these GPS devices uh, over three weekends and, and just compare the time spent on the greens from week to week. And what we found was that there's a, there's a significant relationship between fast greens and slower play. However, the, that relationship is not as, as strong as, as we anticipated originally, but there still is a statistically significant uh, relationship there. In general terms, what are we talking about? I mean, you know, when I go into the New York metropolitan area, you know, it's pretty common to hear high-end country clubs, uh, high-end golf talking about 11, 12-foot green speed on a pretty regular basis. I think the average is in the, you know, right now in the 10 to 11 range for the sort of competitive. And then, you know, maybe where you don't have really good golfers, anywhere from uh, 8.5 to 10 uh, is considered, a, you know, good for daily play at maybe a, a sort of a mom-and-pop sort of place. Uh, yeah. How would you characterize it in that green speed realm and the amount of time it's adding? Well, so uh, we looked at, we tried to get it to about one-foot increments on the stint meter. So, look, so if the standard uh, green speed for a course was around a 10, we'd try to back it off to a 9 for one week, a 10 the second week, and, and a 11 the third week. What we found was variation was substantial, but there was, uh, on average, about a six-second per player, per green addition of time per hole. Over a round of golf, that adds up dramatically, and so that's with a one-foot increment increase. So that means four players are going to spend an extra roughly 30 seconds, 24 seconds per green. And in 18 greens, it's going to be about nine extra minutes of play. Uh, Correct. So that doesn't feel like a burden in some ways, 
but it is indicating it is taking longer. Now, back to the question at hand about fair share. Yeah. Is it worth it? You know, you're a golfer, right? You know, you, you already said you might not join that club that's letting the horses and the dogs out there all the time. <laughs> uh, is it worth it, the amount of expense, even though it's on a small area, right? You you could yeah. argue putting greens don't comprise a, a large amount of the landscape that you're managing. So you could argue, well, it's okay to be intense in these small areas. But generally, if you're being intense in these small areas, I don't think your fairways look too bad. So yeah. how do you want to answer this question? Uh, is it too much? Well, I think we're pretty hung up on speed, and I think that's kind of a little, a little misleading. A proper metric we should be looking at is maybe trueness of role, maybe green health. We don't really uh, look at you know, the health of the root zone of the, of the turf. And so you know, healthy greens are going to require less inputs, and they're going to be able to withstand traffic better than than greens that are stressed out yeah okay okay we're not gonna i'm not gonna let you go down this hole you're okay. a golfer you got yeah. this is the parker talking in the fo- sweater folding <laughs> role these are the challenges right this is what a yeah. golf course superintendent every day the rubber hits the road when those decisions have to be made about mowing heights and inputs and intensity of management And really the question that I think a lot of superintendents are or should be asking themselves, one of them should be, you know, to what extent am I willing to go to to meet the performance demands of golfers that I think compromises my long-term sustainability? These are fundamentally the questions, right, Parker? Yeah, and and I think by this process of collecting data on how green speeds impact pace of play, I think we can inform the golfers that, hey, by having these, these faster greens, your round is going to be impacted. You're going to have a, a more negative experience because of the impact of these faster speeds. One of the things that's critical moving forward for me that you might help with is back to your regionality of sustainability and, and value of these courses. For sure, there's a seasonality to golf. When when you Mm -hmm. play golf, you know, maybe not in California, but in in other parts of the United States, there are clear golfing seasons where you, and, and the climate is going to make that even more difficult to make them consistent season to season, day to day. And my theory is if we can get people to begin to embrace seasonal golf, golf that varies during the year, surfaces yeah. that require you to adjust your game, sort of the variety that's out there, this will give superintendents, in my opinion, the ability to adjust their management because of all the fussing they have to do to keep them consistent, you know, April to November through much of the northern climate. It's, it becomes a huge sustainability question, the amount of energy consumed yeah. for these purposes, Parker. I guess I'm wondering if you think just going at it to embrace the seasonality and variation is a message we can begin to get espoused through the golfing community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a golf course that kind of browns up in the heat of the summer is is fantastic because it's going to change the game. You're going to have a firm and fast playing surface and educating your golfers 
on why that is, I think, is a key component of that. So going back to the to the messaging. Yeah, and but two things. I'll, I'm going to challenge you again. The, yeah. You know, the dry one's pretty easy, right? People like firm and fast. Number one, not all golf courses are set up for it. And yeah. in your experience, and I bet like mine, most of the time we got the problem with them being too wet. And in the spring uh, or this fall, it just hasn't stopped raining how do we get them to embrace, you know, you're, it's going to play longer. Tee the ball forward, you know? Yeah. I, so are you with me on this? Yeah, yeah, and I think I think part of that, too, could be looked at uh, these out-of-play areas, this other 40% of the golf course that is underutilized. Can we turn those into, you know, stormwater catchment bases so that the entire golf course is not completely flooded all the time? Can we manage that water that comes on in a more efficient way so we can try to get those fairways to roll out rather than being so wet? And, yeah, and, and listen, I want to start to wrap up. And I know it's a burden out there with Horgan, although Brian is a fine scientist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All the five people left listening will hear me uh, rank on my friend. And we've had him on this show in the past promoting the science of the green. And I want to give you a chance to do that as well. I think this is a spectacular partnership between the United States Golf Association and the University of Minnesota. Very pleased that they we're able to bring somebody with your acumen and background uh, on the program. But in Thank general, what's, what's, what's out there? What can we expect from the Science of the Green Project uh, moving forward? You've already accomplished a few things with Pace of Play and, and uh, Natural Capital. There's some wonderful stuff on the website. The presentation from that student is on YouTube is, a, mm-hmm. is my opinion, a must-watch. I think every golf course superintendent should have to watch that a particular video to understand the the mindset you need to approach yeah. it this way. So what can we expect from the science of the green project moving forward, Parker? Well, our goal is to, to, to collect data and really tell the story of golf through a, a more positive narrative. And that's through data-driven science. So I really applaud all the superintendents out there that are collecting data. They don't have the time maybe to analyze it, but I think just being able to collect that data and have that available in the event that it's necessary is really valuable to us as scientists and to the industry as a whole. You know, the more data we have, the better our understanding of, of our impact on the ecosystem, on community, and, and the economy really, really is. And so you're collecting data, actively collecting data in a number of projects. Yes, we're looking at ways to take these data and really be able to quantify the value of a golf course on a, a more scoring system where we can, you know, there's the factors we have or the, the numbers we have now are really focused on the kind of the monetary components of golf. We want to see the ecosystem values of golf and how do we quantify those data and how we tell that story and how do we present that data in a way that's digestible, that's tangible, and that's really relevant that we can learn from and change our management strategies based on. That's perfect. Parker, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on Frankly Speaking. It's been a wonderful conversation. I I am just so enamored with the project in general and and so much hope for monetizing some of these things that natural capital that you can make it maybe make it a little bit easier for communities to understand them. So I really applaud your work. Uh, glad you came over uh, from Michigan out to Minnesota and wish you nothing but the best with the Science of the Green Project moving forward, especially with uh, keeping Horgan in line out there. I appreciate it, Frank. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks a lot, Parker Anderson on Frankly Speaking. And from the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, I'm Frank Russell.